Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its regions. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University. And once again, I'm joined by my pod partner, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Sharon. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine. It's great to be in the studio together again. It is good to be here, and this is going to be a really fascinating discussion. But before we get into that, just a reminder that Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out our degree programs and our short courses. There's an amazing array of things that you can do, and you can find all of that information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Well, as I think everyone in Australia knows, this week, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced Australia's 2021-22 federal budget. My absolute favourite description of the budget so far is that it's a hot chocolate budget, referencing that particularly excellent band and their fabulous song, Everyone's a Winner. And certainly, the budget seems to have something for everyone, from childcare to aged care to tax cuts, support for business, infrastructure and rural and regional Australia. And as one of today's guests wrote, the Treasurer's language on deficit, debt and spending is indeed a sharp change from the language he and his government have used in the past. But was everyone a winner? Certainly not higher education. And this is a serious detriment to our country now and into the future. But today we're focusing in particular on social policy and asking who the winners were there. And drawing again on Hot Chocolate's lyrics, has the government managed to satisfy? The budget included some significant spending on social services, including $17.7 billion on an aged care package that is so urgently needed in this country, $13.2 billion on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and $2.3 billion on a mental health package. But is this a budget seeking to drive transformative change? What does it mean from a social policy perspective? And how will it impact Australians who are experiencing disadvantage? We have two amazing guests here with us in the studio to discuss some of these questions. Anna Greta, who do we have? 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic panel. We have two people joining us today. Firstly, Dr. John Falzon. He's a sociologist, a poet, and a social justice advocate, and he should be well known to regular listeners of our podcast uh, for his uh, regular contributions. He's a senior fellow of inequality and social justice at Per Capita. He's the previous national CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society from 2006 to 2018. And in 2015, John received an Order of Australia Medal for his services to the community through social welfare organisations. And sitting beside John today is Casey Chambers. Casey, welcome. She's the Executive Director of Anglicare Australia. She's an accomplished CEO with extensive national experience in government and the community sector, including organisations like Uniting Care Australia, ACOS and the Department of Family, Community Services and Indigenous Affairs. Welcome, John and Casey. Thank you. Thanks. So it's great to have you both with us. And I thought we might start with a, a simple overview question. What were your highlights from the budget? Casey, would you like to go first? Oh, look, I think the highlight from the budget was that that dropping of deficit language. Um, and I think we need to, I think we do need to welcome that. I think we need to do that uh, genuinely, but also in a way that we use to hold the government to that kind of um, thought that the government is more, you know, to lead a country is more than simply cutting back on money and looking after figures. Um, so, you know, we, we could see that during the pandemic, the government did look after public health. We, I think we do have to hand it to them that we're in a better place than many countries, albeit assisted by state governments and the fact that we're an island girt by sea. Um, but, you know, we looked after the public health and in doing so, you know, we looked after everyone's health. And I think one of the things we want to take from this is that, um, you know, the government did make a choice. It did understand that it could end poverty and it could end homelessness, for example, in looking after everyone's health in that pandemic. And we have to help the government understand that it could make a choice to end it. And now every time it makes a choice to cause it, that is a structural choice. I think the other highlight for us was aged care. And I do have to say that, um, you know, the government took us all by surprise by responding to the Royal Commission on budget night, as well as putting the budget papers out. And it is a pretty... Um, it is quite a, a response to the Royal Commission. It's pretty comprehensive. There's not much missing. So, you know, I think I think that's a pretty big highlight. I'm sure you'll ask me about low lights later. So <laughs> I'll I'll stay positive and highlighted yeah, no, at this lots stage. Of we'll talk about for the conversation today. John, what were your highlights? Oh, I'm scratching my head here. Um, yeah. uh, no, I agree with Casey that the that the the um, the change in the language on deficit and debt uh, is significant. Yep. <clears throat> My concern is that in the coming years, we will see a rapid return to the language of um, of, uh, of, of uh, recovery on the bottom line. And I know who will be paying the price for that. I know also that the the stage three tax cuts will be set in stone. That uh, that the big end of town won't be paying the price mm. to get us back into black mm. when the language does change. It will be the very services uh, that we care about. It will be the people uh, who are already locked into a permanent state of austerity. Uh, many of whom, uh, in fact, uh, all of whom did not benefit from this week's budget. Um, and and so you know, my, that that's my chief concern. Uh, I don't say that glibly. I say it too on the basis of, of some very uh, interesting analysis which suggests that the that the um, the forward 
uh, estimates on on where the revenue is coming from to fund some of these longer term promises that have been made are based on uh, the the economy continuing to grow through people spending. I'm deeply concerned that that will not happen as long as we lock in the reality of insecure work, wage stagnation, in fact, wages going backwards in real terms, and of course, statutory incomes going backwards in real terms. John, just to to follow up on that, um, we wanted a little later to to pick up in more detail on that issue of of wage growth. But I I wonder what your assessment is of the tax cuts to low and middle income earners. You know, is that um is that something that you see as a positive or do you do you feel that that's not sufficient when we look at the the quite major cuts at the the higher end of the the tax cut? It, it, it's sort of like um you know it reminds me of the of the landlord uh, who who's called by the tenant to say um, you know the peers the foundations are crumbling and the landlord responds by giving the house a lick of paint. Of course, um, the tax cuts. Uh, are not to be sneezed at, you know, when when you are desperately counting every dollar from week to week, uh, everything matters. But it doesn't address the fundamental structural problems uh, in the labour market, uh, in, in the fact that wages are not only not growing, but there seems to be a deliberate policy on government's behalf, uh, and you can see it uh, in, in, uh, in its estimates on, on, uh, on the future. That it does, it, it it actually factors in the fact that the wages not growing, uh, slipping behind uh, the cost of living. Uh, we also know that the government is quite robustly um, prosecuting the case for uh, minimising. Uh, any increase in the minimum wage. We also know that it has locked in casualisation as a as a as a business model, uh, and for all the the wonderful figures that the government is uh, is is uh, gloating over regarding uh, jobs uh, during the recovery, we know that sixty percent of the jobs created since the beginning of the recovery are casual, and women occupy 62% of those casual jobs. So uh, I'm profoundly concerned that, uh, you know, a, 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 a tokenistic tax cut won't cut it as far as uh, meeting those needs, those cost of living needs, let alone increased spending to, to pump prime the economy. Casey, you flagged that the question about low lights might be coming. <laughs> are there are there particular groups that you think are, are missing from the budget that uh, you know, particularly social groups that are missing mm. from the budget that you think should have had more attention? Yeah, look, and I was also going to try and, and keep the food analogy going to some extent as well. I heard Annabelle Crabb describe this as a pizza with the lot kind of budget. <laughs> um, and if I think about that, I think, yeah, there's, there's some nice bits. There's some nice sun-dried tomatoes on there and nice mozzarella cheese. But actually the base, the actual base is, is not there. Um, and so, um, you know, I think the, there's a few things. I couldn't agree more with John about the insecure work and underemployment. We've really got to remember those people. The government very handily only talks about unemployment. Um, we've got to find a way of thinking about underemployment and capturing it. 
And of course, also, you know, the government's talking about bringing not not paying attention to austerity until we get the unemployment level down to four point something percent. You know, I always get quite offended by that language. Any percent is collateral damage in 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 this. Um, I often think about that that lovely story of Ursula Le Guin's, the the ones who walked away, and that child in the room, um, and think about who is the person, who is the sacrifice in our society, so that we can all live the life we want to. And it's actually the pizza di- uh, delivery driver. It's the insecure worker. It's it's the the chicken in the um, battery f- range. You know, it's all those kind of things. But um, the language that did slip on budget night, you, you get to the welfare area, and we're still seeing there's still that narrative around. Whilst we've got narrative about single mothers being, you know, one of the backstays of, of the community, there's still language then around that we need to spend money. It's an ex- you know, it's actually an expense to get back debt from people who are on welfare. So it is clearly recognised in saying that that's an expense measure that, um, you know, we're, we're willing to pay for that. There's also that deeply concerning saving measure. Uh, I think it's $671 million, um, in in a saving measure in rolling out the the waiting period for newly arrived migrants and newly arrived people. Yeah, that's deeply concerning that anyone should come here and and spend four years before they have any recourse to to public funding. Even if they were rich when they got here, there's a lot can happen in four years. So, you know, those those groups missed out. The environment missed out. I know we're going to talk about social here, but there's there ain't no social if there ain't an environment to operate and and breathe and live in. Um, Housing, we were very disappointing, very disappointed with housing. Uh, it's very well to have education, health, work, anything else, but housing really is the bedrock, and there was nothing there. Um, you know, we we were we were hoping to see a down payment or some leadership in um, social housing and affordable housing. Uh, it's not there, um, nor is any kind of uh, um, attempt to change the way we actually structure the private rental market in order to ask that to to jump into the affordable um, housing market. So I think those are those were where our big losers were. Um, I mean, I hesitate to talk about winners and losers. I've got a bit of a soapbox about you know judging a budget by who's hip pocket and and things. I think we should be looking at what kind of a society it drives. But certainly, it's very hard to drive a society when you've got such huge pockets missing out on affordable housing and spending their time worrying, as John says, where the next dollar's going to come from and how they're actually going to pay the rent. And so, John, do you think this is the budget that can help to create? What sort of vision do you see of its future? What's the narrative that's that's you can see through the budget? Um, Creating a socially inclusive society? Yeah, right. So. Um, okay, f- foodie time again. Um, my, my, uh, my, I'm beginning to regret the hot chocolate. Yeah, no, 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 no. We're, we're, uh, we're there now. Let's yeah, go yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I described it on, on budget night as, as a, a budget that was rich in pre-election carbs, mm. but low on protein for the people who need it. Um, but what I want to focus on is uh, this this much celebrated, uh, you know, uh, promise by the, the treasurer that the, that we would see no sharp pivots towards austerity. Um, but you know, yeah, sure. Although although you know, if you're in the university sector, you'd you'd dispute that. I think it is a sharp pivot towards austerity for the university sector. Um, but neither does it. 
Um, neither does it remove the knife of austerity from the backs into which it has been incrementally plunged. Uh, you know, so so you know, um, if you're in low paid or insecure work, if you depend on the minimum wage, the knife of austerity will remain in your back. If you're unemployed and unable to live on that, that as Casey pointed out, the obscenely low level of income support, uh, the knife of austerity will remain in your back. If you're underemployed or if you're doing the the, the highly gendered, uh, unpaid or low paid work of caring, including the people in, 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 the, you know, in the aged care sector and in the early childhood sector, um, the knife of austerity will remain in your back. Uh, and, and as for um, the, the NDIS, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I think if you're living with a disability, uh, many many people will be justifiably terrified uh, by the government's plans to cut an estimated seven hundred million dollars uh, through independent assessments, and by the minister responsible uh, offensively wondering out loud whether the NDIS has actually made people less functional over time. Uh, the knife of austerity is not just remaining in your back; it's about to be plunged in even deeper and then twisted. Mm. So, you know. These are the areas that concern me, and I agree with Casey. The language on on uh, you know social security or welfare, as the government likes to talk about it, it, it remains deeply demeaning and demonising. It's seen as it's it's as if the government treats it as an addiction that you've got to get people off it. And there have been some fairly ramped up punitive measures as far as people experiencing unemployment are concerned to try and make life just a little bit harder, to make savings by making it, uh, making the waiting period for the receipt of benefits uh, a little bit longer. These things are mean and nasty and they impose austerity on people's lives. So, you know, yes, it's a budget that ticks boxes, lots of ticks boxes. It's a budget of tokenism and it's a budget of trickle-down theory Mm. uh, because it depends on bucket loads of money going to the private sector. I'm not making, you know, this is government's own admission uh, in, in, in in this incredible belief, this fantasy that somehow that's going to translate into more jobs, higher wages, uh, growth all round. And uh, you know, I, I don't know where people on statutory incomes fit in, in, into that. But again, there's this, this crazy belief that all of a sudden the jobs are going to fall from the sky. We know trickle down doesn't work. Uh, you know, We're still waiting for the wealth to trickle down. And all we hear is the sound of the excluded still waiting. And what this budget doesn't heed is the fact that you don't build a strong economy or a fair society by leaving out the people who have long been left out. Casey, I'm really interested to hear your take on the implications of the budget for addressing poverty in this country. We have had relatively high, within the OECD context, relatively high levels of poverty for for quite some time. You pointed out earlier that we showed last year we could actually um, reduce poverty very dramatically. What's your take on the implications of this budget for people who are living in poverty? And particularly, um, you know, John mentioned people on, on income support, those very low levels, but particularly for single parent families and particularly single mother families where we know the rates of poverty are, are exceptionally high. Yeah. Look, 
I've had two thoughts while John's been talking. One is to never come on a podcast with a poet again because, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have anything like the, the knife of austerity. Um, and I was trying to think of what, what the, you know, what the other side of that was. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I, I think when I sort of, I think I woke up on Saturday morning and, um, you know, the, the, the treasurer was talking about single mothers and the, the real job, the backbone they provided to Australia. And I actually thought I'd done a Rip Van Winkle and fallen asleep and woken up somewhere else. I couldn't quite figure it out. But then we saw the budget papers and we saw that basically two and a half thousand single parents, and we know that about 80% of single parents are, are single female parents, are single mothers. Um, so two and a half thousand a year were going to get some, you know, basically some assistance to um, purchase into their own homes. That does nothing to actually in any way talk into the structural failures of the housing market. Um, and it's also worth noting that from the figures I can find, between, depending on which figures you look at, between 40 and 60% of single parents are actually solely dependent upon income support rather than having any other money. So th this is, this is, you know, it's not gonna. It's not gonna make any difference. What it has allowed, however, is a conversation about single parents. So, if I was out there in normal person land, without the the ability to get locked up and read vast amounts of budget papers, I would think our single mothers have been looked after. Great, fantastic, and the government's language would have would have taken care of that. Of course, what we can see is that that's that's not the case at all. We worry deeply about single parents or, or about any parents. Who are living on income support? Uh, we we do a bit of a um, a measure every year. We we look at rental housing and we take a vast number of rental properties and we assess them for affordability. And anyone on parenting pension cannot manage to make that rent. We then hear the stories day after day after day from tens of thousands of people of what they do to make that happen. And those stories are heartbreaking in a first world country. And this budget's done nothing to do that. It's done nothing to help single parents. It's done nothing to help them into school every day rather than being kept back from school on the days when parents can't put something in their lunchbox. It's done nothing to help them have friends around after school because they can't afford to put some snacks on the table. Those are stories that just break everyone's heart who hears them. Um, and that this budget's not going to touch that. And as I said earlier, the language, the demonization, the criminalization of welfare is still there. There's still this individualization of risk of poverty. So when, you know, it, it is your fault, it is a, an individual problem. And I think what we proved last year is it doesn't have to be. I think that is a great spot for us to take a quick break. Listeners will be back in a moment for a further discussion about the implications of this budget. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with John Falzon and Casey Chambers discussing this year's Australian federal budget. And I should say discussing it in particularly lyrical terms um, with John, <laughs> who is our resident poet. <laughs> Casey, I wanted to, to turn to you first. And you made the point um, at the beginning of this conversation that the announcements in the budget around aged care, there's $17.7 billion there. Um, is really very significant. Uh, Health Minister Greg Hunt described a once-in-a-generation reform that's about to happen here. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your assessment of that aged care package? Sure. So, you know, that there's, there's a lot been addressed there. Uh, the Royal Commission put into, um, safety and quality in aged care put forward 148 recommendations. The government's accepted all but 26 of them in its response and it's only rejected six. So, you know, the, the other numbers somewhere in will look at it or partially or, or whatever. Um, you know, there's a significant increase to home care packages, 80,000 over two years. There's um, a significant amount of respite in there. Carers have been considered. There's some stuff on service navigation because it is a complex system. Um, with residential aged care, there's some stuff there to prop them up immediately, $10 a day. Uh, I think what a lot of the community didn't realise was how much more it cost to run aged care during COVID. We had to put people on to check people temperatures. We had to go through vast amounts of PPE, just in sheer material costs. Um, so that, that was that was great. We are looking now at a stage where it will be funded residential aged care to include 200 minutes of, of person-to-person care every day, including some nursing care. There'll be a star rating system. There'll be a new pricing authority. So there's quite a bit of governance wrapped around it. There'll be you know, some some stuff in workforce, which is the really important one. So 13,000 new jobs, uh, 33,800 new Cert 3 um, qualifications. I think what we've got to look at are the risks. So, you know, there's a there's a very small risk that this may not get legislated. So this still has to, to go through. The big risk is the workforce and whether we can actually get that workforce. Um, and there's, there's lots of thoughts about that, about where that's competed for. As John has said, it's a very low paid workforce at the moment. There is a work value case underway at the moment. And we are deeply supportive of that becoming, you know, driving a wage, which is much better. We also want to see um, some move around making sure that people coming into that sector have career paths, can move in and out, uh, do have some incentive. And we want to make sure that they do not exit that workforce as the work, you know, with very low retirement incomes. Um, I think the other risk is the new pricing model and how that's going to look after that. But really, it's going to be the workforce. That, that's going to be the issue about whether we can get the workforce in place, 
caring and cared for. The other thing that doesn't quite come through is, you know, that the media has been full of the 80,000 new places. There's always fine print, obviously. Um, only 12,000 of those are level four packages, which is, you know, the, the high level. Uh, I think there's some sorting through to be done on that list. There's so many people on that list. It's been so dysfunctional that we don't actually, I have a sense, I don't see the list, but I, I suspect we don't know who's on that list, who's died, unfortunately, who, who has moved up in terms of their need, who's moved on to residential care because they haven't been able to get an aged care package in their home for the last you know number of years. So I think the 80,000 packages is going to help just sort through that list a bit. But it has been a pretty comprehensive way of, of responding to it. Um, and I think it's going to be a useful roadmap. The other risk is that we do see it as a once in a generation thing. This is, a, I'm not going to make that cliche that's a step in the right direction. It is way, 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 way more than that. But for change, you know, that we're looking at today being transformational, in two years' time, that needs to be standard. And we need to be looking at the next level of transformational change. And we really do need to move to quite a different system of care, quite a different amount of care for that to be transformational for people as they live valued lives and value, you know, and, and good deaths, quite frankly. John, I think wage growth is probably a really important part of this puzzle. And every time I hear someone talking about the aged care, it's great to have a huge investment here. But I think the vulnerability really is in the, the carers that are doing the work at the uh, within that system. Um, what's your take on this government's approach to their low, to low wage growth, uh, and what do you see that meaning for workers? I think they're deeply committed to low wage growth, <laughs> Anna Greta. Uh, I, I do. All jokes aside, no, no. Uh, it is an ideological fixation. Mm. And it doesn't make sense if you want if you want the economy to recover, people need to have money to spend, and they're not going to have money to spend if their wages are actually going backwards in real terms. So, why why is the government ideologically committed to uh, to suppressing wage growth, to wage stagnation, and to keeping um, uh, statutory incomes low? Uh, well. On the statutory income side, there, there is, as Casey has outlined uh, very well, uh, a, a, a strong uh, a, a hatred, a loathing uh, in the neoliberal ideology for the whole concept of socialising risk, of of making sure that as a society we look after each other and we do that through public funds. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, you know the, there's an incredible resistance, and we've seen this on both sides of politics through the years, an incredible resistance to lifting uh, those below poverty line levels of income support. Mm. Now, if you look, you, know, you don't look at that in isolation because if you keep the unemployment benefit low and the other working age benefits low, uh, then it uh, it provides uh, a, a, a threat to those who are at the low end of the labour market and in casual and insecure work. That you know, if you want life even harder, then walk away from this low-paid, insecure job. And so the idea of keeping labour costs low is the other side of the coin to keeping profits high. It, again, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, we can, we can, you know, increase 
uh, wages. Uh, we can grow the economy uh, by looking at the the uses of technology. By by uh, uh, you know we've, we've seen incredible productivity gains, and yet they're not translating into wages growth. And so it's fundamentally it's about power. And part of the power imbalance has been the 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 concerted efforts to uh, to stop uh, labour, to stop the wor- working people from organising themselves to collectively bargain. And we've seen this in in a lot of the the, the hatred of the union movement, because the union movement is basically a means by which ordinary working people say, instead of me trying to stand alone, I'm, we're going to stand together and demand what is rightfully ours. And so, uh, you know, this is of huge concern into the future. I'm not a, a pessimist, however, because I do believe, you know, history shows us that, uh, you know, when people stand together, change will come. And as this uh, inequality is ramped up, as precarity is ramped up, I believe more and more people will see the need to join together to stand up. John, that's th- th- there are so many insights there, and I, I guess I, I agree with you um, about the optimism and, and the possibility of um, collective action starting to shift this. I guess the concern is the toll that it takes in terms of people's lives and social justice in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Casey, I just wanted to to shift the focus somewhat and to talk about women, gender and the budget. The budget included a women's budget statements uh, or a women's budget statement and there were announcements around women's health, domestic violence prevention and childcare as part of that statement. Um, As someone who's worked on gender equality for the last couple of decades, (laughs) um, to me, childcare should not sit as there as a women's issue, it should be there as a social policy issue um, and a much broader societal issue, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and my take on this was also that this was actually not a women's budget. It was a statement around some announcements for women, but it wasn't what we would expect in terms of a deep analysis, um, a deep gendered analysis of how spending and resourcing impacts on women. Um, but that's that's just my kind of summary of it, and I'm really keen to hear your take on the way the government has approached these issues. Look, I, I, I totally reject that it was a women's budget. I completely reject that childcare is a women's issue. I completely angrily reject that domestic violence is a women's issue. Um, it looks like the kind of budget that someone said, what about women? What about women? Oh, yeah, there, there's a women's problem with violence. Oh, there's a women's problem with children. That might be a pink budget. It might be a 1950s view of what women are concerned with. But no, look, I mean, I think we should completely I'd, we can't ignore the fact that domestic violence is a huge scourge and it has come to the fore during the pandemic as well. And it's great to see some money. And I have to say some of that money I think is going to be, is being put forward in good ways. Um, so, you know, there is some prevention stuff. There is some um, almost brokerage money around $5,000, you know, to get 
are people assisted to get somewhere safe? That's useful stuff. And there's also some money, um, not small money, 25, nearly 26 million for other measures to assist women affected. That's quite exciting from where I sit because that, that looks like something that we can use in a co-design way to go to the government and say, we've found this works or, you know. And the other thing that was nice about that statement was that um, First Nations women were recognised as having separate and different needs and um, women from migrant communities, again, were recognised as having separate needs. And there was also um, a measure in there where the wording even gave us a clue that they understood that financial independence was also an issue around um, assisting safety. Having said that, this is about safe communities. That's not about that's not a women's issue. So I think, yeah, I would be very cross. Um, I haven't got a food analogy for this. So I'll go to Christmas presents or something like that instead if we're staying with those kind of analogies. I'd be really, really cross if next year, you know, we went back to the bloke's budget and they said, but you got your Christmas present last year. You got that last year. You know, we wrapped it very nicely in pink paper and it was all nice for you. But no, I, I don't think there was much there that was specifically for, for women. I think those issues are around decent and safer communities um, and also, yeah, you know, assisting um, people into work. Um, you know, I did want to come back to, to you know, listening to John talk about work. I think there's a bigger issue here as well and that's that around – and I want to go back to the environment again. If we keep thinking about getting everybody back to the kind of work they were in, if we keep thinking about getting every shopping centre back to operating seven days a week from nine till five, you know, every shopping centre you walk into has four shoe shops. I've only got two feet. I don't know about everybody else out there, but we really do not need the level of consumerism we've got. It's not... I don't really see it as, as hugely valuable employment. And I think we've got to have a conversation about why we value that more than somebody caring for country or caring for uh, a relative or producing creative art or any of those kind of things. And I think we've got to think about how we value and therefore pay for human contribution and participation. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep driving this environment to a place where there won't be anything left. That's such a beautiful way to think about the budget. That's probably summarised my thoughts very, very nicely. And I know for Sharon and I, with the podcast, we often find ourselves using hashtag value caring. You know, <laughs> the number of issues that we solve here, we solve aged care by valuing caring, mm. we solve childcare by valuing caring, mm. we solve a lot of our environmental issues by valuing the country on which we live. Um and it takes me to the next question, which is about the other major challenges that are facing us. Australia and the rest of the world face some pretty serious challenges, the coronavirus pandemic, environmental issues, particularly climate change. And we've talked a little bit about social policy so far. I think we've nicely disentangled some of the issues there that are in this budget. But how does this budget show us some vision in dealing with other large challenges that are on the road ahead? John, what do you think? I don't believe that it is a budget with vision for the future. I believe that it is a budget with vision towards the next election, to summarise it in the nutshell. I don't believe, you know, as as Casey has said and as you have said, Anna Greta, that um, there there is no vision regarding uh, a post-carbon uh, economy. There is no vision as far as the way we valorise work, uh, the way we valorise unpaid work. Uh, there is no vision regarding creating a, a society where 
we have the space to care for each other. You know, these are lessons that were driven home during the height of the pandemic, as we've discussed before on previous podcasts. And it's that sense, uh, you know, uh, um, it's that that sense of, you know, what Judith Butler uh, differentiates between precariousness, the fact that we all need help from each other to survive, something to celebrate that beautiful sense of human solidarity that we we are we we cannot be alone, and yet this the kind of society we are in, uh, the capitalist socio-economic formation, uh, actually thrives on on driving us away from each other, on atomizing us in the labour market, in society, um, in, in terms of uh, social isolation, in terms of every person for themselves economically. Precarity is that which is manufactured, deliberately unpo- imposed uh, differentially on different se- sections of the population. And it's that exposure to injury and death that is completely avoidable. So we see, we, you know, we see that in spades in, you know, that's why I'm, I'm not simply being lyrical when I speak about the knife of austerity in people's backs. Um, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. And it's particularly isolating when that is not recognized. Uh, you know, when, when, you know, we are made to feel that everything is dandy, that we're, we're sitting pretty, that we're the lucky country, that, uh, you know, we've got a high standard of living. And when you haven't got that high standard of living, you are made to feel that there's no one else to blame but yourselves. Now, if we are to talk vision, we need to talk a vision that, uh, you know, begins, begins with, uh, recognition of the First Nations uh, peoples begins with uh, taking seriously as a nation what was called for in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, begins with voice and agency for First Nations peoples, begins with an acknowledgement of the violence, the ongoing violence of colonisation. And from there uh, goes on to democratise our sense of our power over the future. I think that's what's missing. Going back to what I said earlier about the the, you know, the house and the liquor paint and the foundations, mm. the problem isn't the foundations crumbling. The problem is who owns the house. And that's, that's to me, uh, you know, that's at the heart of where we go next. We need a sense of shared ownership not in that, not in that private property sense, but in that sense of uh, commonality, of shared responsibility, and shared self determination over our future. Casey, the big <laughs> picture: you know, how we go through an ongoing global mm. crisis to do with the pandemic, how we face the future of what we know to be an increasingly uncertain environment, natural environment, with the process of climate change well underway. How do you see the vision coming through in the budget? I, I don't see a vision. Uh, I I think 
we I'm very sad. I think we missed the opportunity that was the pandemic, just as I think we missed the opportunity that was the global financial crisis all those years ago when John and I worked more closely I together. There was a little clue for me in the budget that things aren't going to change. And it may seem counterintuitive that I'm going to rise, raise this as a slightly bad thing. And that, that was that there was a small payment, and I, I can't remember how much about, I, I, no, I can't remember, for pandemic leave, to continue pandemic leave for people in insecure work. Now, your intuition would say that's a good thing. However, why is the government paying that? What that continues to say is that we're going to continue to allow large companies to pay too small uh, a wage and not to be involved in statutory required sick leave, uh, rec leave, parental leave and anything else. That That's a little clue that we're, we're just, this is an elastoplast while the pandemic goes away. I think the fact that there was nothing for the environment in the budget, that the only positive thing in the budget was in millions, not bi- sorry for the environment, was in millions, not billions. Uh, and in fact, there was a lot of money for repairing you know, for disaster recovery. There was also a lot of money, of course, for gas and and coal fired. And if you took that money away from the amount that was being put into the environment, we would have a negative um, in in the budget. So I I really don't see that we can be visionary if we're not thinking about that environment. Um, There was a number of other things. I mean, the vision, I think the other number that tells us about where this vision is, and it's a very short-term vision, there was a figure tucked away that's 9.6 billion, a million, and that is, um, I forget what they call it, but it's this little thing that sits away in budget paper four, and it's announcements budgeted for but not yet made. In other words, it's the war chest. So I think that tells that figure, that 9.6 billion, that's a lot of money, that tells us how long the vision is in this budget. John and Casey, I think this is a conversation that both Anna Greta and I would like to continue for a lot longer. Um, We are going to have to wrap up for now. I think we will come back to some of these issues over the rest of the year as we see how this all plays out in practice. But I wanted to to draw this conversation to a close by asking both of you about the 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 number one piece of advice you would give to policymakers about creating real terms in real change in terms of social policy in Australia. We've covered so much territory. This is a really difficult ask. <laughs> but if we were, John, you talk about the things we need to do to make structural change. And Casey, you've gone to that as well. In beginning to do that, what is the first thing that we need to pay attention to? Just one thing. I give you. <laughs> I give you perhaps two or three, John. If <laughs> um, I've got one. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll do two. So if, I, if I'm permitted, uh, first is the recognition uh, that social infrastructure is economic infrastructure, and not to treat it as as something peripheral. So to to understand that when you invest as a nation in uh, you know in people who have been 
marginalised people who have been left out or pushed out from the labour market, that's an investment uh, in all of society. When you invest in health, education, uh, you know, housing, public housing, so essential. You know, this this is not peripheral. This is not residual. It's at the core of who we are as a nation. So that's the first thing. You know, you know, let's go back to that strong sense of the public sphere, the public, the public space, and reclaim it as ours. And secondly, uh, to to uh, to allow uh, working people, working class people, and I include in that those who have been residualised from the labour market, uh, to allow. Uh, the, the the free association and collective organisation and and uh, advocacy by working class people not to stand in the way to to let working class people organise uh, as unions uh, together uh, to uh, to be able to say what we need as a nation, not just in an individual workplace, but in making society uh, more inclusive for everyone. Casey. Look, I think it's if we're talking social change and for policymakers, the first clue is, and John touched on it, that this is investment, not burden. And we've got to change our language and thinking around that. And then I would say we should be co-designing. So, you know, I look at one of the big changes in the budget. They, they, um, they're projecting $860 million saving in changes to Job Active. The changes they have made is in assuming that they will move half the caseload. That, that's a word for people, by the way. Um, half the caseload into a digital format. Now we know from talking to tens of thousands of Australians every week through our Anglicare services that that doesn't work for some people, that it won't work for 50% of those people, that this is not something that's been worked through. So this is an efficiency design, um, a measure. It is not a, it's not a service or a policy. And efficiency is short term usually. And so if this had been co-designed, we might see a system that actually works with people and assists them to get into jobs or into meaningful participation. This ain't going to do it. It's going to drive some short-term savings. And so if we'd been look, w- working with the people that are going to use that system and looking at what they would tell us was going to work, um, I know that they would tell us that having someone to listen to them, to work out what their situation was and to work fairly intensively at the front end would actually get them into to sustainable work that they could stay in for a longer period of time and would actually be able to take their peers with them often. That's what they tell us. Uh, And that's so far from that that they can absolutely see there's been no co-design. So it would be really about talk to the people who are going to be the users of the system and the policy and get their input. Because one of the things that concerns me more and more is cuts to the public service, cuts to universities, cuts to places that think. Uh, What we're actually turning all those places into is contract managers rather than uh, people that actually see people. And certainly with the public service, that's a real a real loss in terms of how these policies come through in the budget. I think there are three foundational pieces of advice that we should begin to rebuild policy for the future on in this country. This has been an amazing conversation. I think I can speak on behalf of Anna Greta and I when we say Definitely. we have both enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so much for your insights and your wisdom on what this budget means for this country um, and how we need to be looking forward. John Felson, Casey Chambers, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, everyone.
Sharon, that was quite an extraordinary conversation and I think gives us a great perspective on the budget, which was very much, it was easy to think that this was a, a nice sugary hit, but I think there are quite significant concerns about structural change that come from uh, this week's federal budget. What were your thoughts? Yes, yeah, similarly. I mean, I just love that conversation. I mean, both John and Casey, I think, bring such such deep experience and such deep insight into these issues. Um, and that's what we need in terms of thinking about the challenges that face us. I don't want to push the food analogies that we've been using too far, but it does feel a little bit like the icing. Yep. And everyone loves the icing, yep. but the cake may not be particularly well baked. And and I have to say, Anna Greta, the one thing that really struck me in the budget was that there was really almost nothing to address structural poverty in this country. There was nothing around child poverty, which you know for, for me was a really deep concern, and I think for all Australians should be a really deep concern. And John's language of the knife of austerity in people's backs, you know, I think that's it's beautiful language, but it's also the reality of the pain that people feel from um, the various austerity measures that have been put in place over a very long period of time in this country now. And the research that I do with children, you know, we we shouldn't pretend that children don't feel that knife of austerity. Mm. You know, I've heard seven-year-olds describing what that means in their everyday lives. So we have to take this really seriously and we cannot address these issues with band-aids. We have to address them with deep structural reform. And I guess the concerning part about the budget is that this is a big spend. So it puts us on a particular track. How do we now start to think about the resources that we will need to address those structural issues. Yeah, and that's my concern. We've spent $100 billion and the structural changes are not there. Um, I liked one of John Falzon's other analogies around the housing. I feel like we're putting a very expensive kitchen into a house where the fund, the the, the, you know, the platform really needs to be discussed, the garden needs attention, and the community in which that house sits still needs quite a deal of investment. And the way in which we could have spread that investment in the new kitchen or the $100 billion, we could have you really used that to look at the foundations of our society, how we value caring, how we value our human relationships, how we look after each other, how we grow together, how we deal with the different phases of our life, and how we care for the planet on which we live. Um, and I don't see any of that coming from the budget. I particularly don't see uh, that long-term vision. We don't see a 10 or a 25-year vision. The lack of investment in education should be concerning for all Australians at any stage of their life. Um, there are some quite significant concerns and we've spent a lot of money without really achieving uh, a better life for as, for as many of us as we could have. I think that's right. And, and I also do have to say very strongly that the um, the the lack of funding or the continued re re withdrawal of funding for the university sector is so deeply mm. disturbing, and that's not just because I'm sitting no. in a university. It's no. because that is the foundation of our future. You know, if we think about what this country's future will be built on, it has to be built around renewable energies, around different ways of living, about route around deep analysis of challenging issues and what that means for policy. And with underfunded universities, we cannot have that. And we are impoverishing our future. 
But perhaps enough of that for now, Anna Greta, although it does strike me that there are two big themes emerging, perhaps around work, perhaps around leadership, (laughs) that we might pick up and explore a little later in this year. Superb idea, Sharon. Great idea. Look forward to it. But for now, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation as much as Anna Greta and I have. Do get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts about this episode and all the other things we do. You can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum or via email podcast at anupolicyforum.net. Probably the best way to connect with us if you're a Facebook user is via our Facebook group. If you just pop Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us there. We will be back next week for another episode, so please come back again then. For me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, bye-bye. See you next week, Sharon. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.